on certain together. Welcome back. We're here with you again. I'm Ruth. I'm Leo. And I'm Sergio. Today we are looking into the abyss. Yeah, today we're going to look at the heavy, difficult side of dizziness, but we feel it's really valid to see the ugly face of dizziness. We have to know how the dynamics of dizziness support the falling apart of our societies. Let's start with the radio play about the historical figure of Abdallah. In his book, The Wretched of the Earth, the psychiatrist and anti-colonial writer Franz Fanon writes about a man who came to the psychiatric hospital in Algiers where Fanon was working at the time to ask for help. The man in his 30s, writes Fanon, was a patriot who fought in the resistance of one of the African countries which had been independent for several years. Each year, around a certain date, he suffered from prolonged insomnia, accompanied by anxiety and suicidal obsessions. The critical date was that on which he received instructions from his organization to place a bomb somewhere. Ten people had been killed as a result. Some months following his country's independence, he had made the acquaintance of some Europeans, and he had found them very likable. These men and women greeted the new independent state warmly and paid tribute to the courage of the patriots who had fought for freedom. The former militant, therefore, had what might be called an attack of vertigo. He wondered with a feeling of anguish whether among the victims of the bomb there had been people like his new friends. It was true that the targeted cafe was a meeting place for notorious racists, but there was nothing to prevent an ordinary passerby from going in for a drink. From the first day that he suffered from vertigo, the man tried to avoid thinking of this incident. Paradoxically, a few days before the crucial date, the first symptoms appeared. After that, they reappeared with great regularity. This militant, who never for a single moment had regretful thoughts of his past action, realized very clearly the manner in which he himself had to pay the price of national independence. It is borderline cases such as his which raise the question of responsibility within the revolutionary framework. In other words, we are forever pursued by our actions, their ordering, their circumstances, and their motivation may perfectly well come to be profoundly modified retrospectively. This is merely one of the traps of history, but can we escape becoming dizzy? And who can affirm that vertigo does not haunt the hall of existence? Vertiginous, a radio play by Denny Gaw. Part 2, Abdallah. On May 8, 1945, when Nazi Germany surrendered to the Allied forces, 
Tens of thousands of Algerians from the cities of Satif, Guelma, and Kereta took to the streets to peacefully celebrate the end of World War II. When they raised their Algerian flag, claiming independence from colonial rule, the French police responded violently and started shooting at unarmed demonstrators. This wave of Algerian nationalism and a demand for independence was followed by the French colonial authorities' refusal to consider a proclamation of independence submitted by Algerian nationalists in 1943. The document claimed that since Algerian soldiers were fighting Nazism in Europe alongside the Allies, they now demand the creation of an Algerian state in which both the French and Jews would be welcome to stay. Back in France, de Gaulle gave a direct order to the French forces in Algeria to suppress any local incitement that might arise while the French were fighting Hitler. In the days following May 8, 1945, the colonial forces and their civilian settler militia carried out mass killings of unarmed civilians including women and children. Reprisal attacks by Algerian peasants using farm tools and knives left about a hundred Europeans dead. In response, colonial forces launched a massive air and ground offensive against several northeastern Algerian cities dropping over 40 tons of bombs. According to the European historians, 15 to 20,000 people were killed in the Satif, Guelma, and Kereta massacres. According to the Algerian state, the numbers reached 45,000. As the horrors of the Holocaust in Europe were being revealed, and the mass graves were being discovered. The French army in Algeria was using quicklime to disfigure their victims' bodies beyond recognition, after dumping them into freshly dug mass graves. Even though it took another nine years for the Algerian War of Independence to begin in 1954, the massacre of May 8, 1945, marks the zero hour of the Algerian War and is one of the high turning points in colonial history. Among the many Algerian soldiers who fought in the French army against the Nazis, was a soldier who had also been a circus acrobat. All we know about him is that he died in a prison camp during the Allied bombing of Germany, that he had a German wife, and that he had a son named Abdallah. As a kid growing up in Paris, Abdallah Bentaga worked in the circus. 
From an early age, his dream was to become a tightrope walker, just like his father. Abdallah's job was primarily to train the horses and clean the animals' stalls. In exchange, he was given food, shelter, and was trained by the head of the troop. Being half Algerian and half German, or mulatto, as they used to call it back then, Abdallah never felt he belonged. The atmosphere of suspicion in France leading to the Algerian war did not contribute to his sense of belonging, especially when he was occasionally picked up by the police just for looking like an Arab. In 1955, Abdallah met the writer Jean Genet. The famous 45-year-old writer was fascinated by the 18-year-old acrobat after seeing him in the circus and seduced him by showering him with the attention he had never received from his father, who had died when he was very young. This love affair which Genet later described as one of the most meaningful in his life cannot be separated from the French writer's long relationship with the Arab world. During the colonial period, sexual tourism was very popular in North Africa, especially among a number of known European writers. While Genet can be seen as partaking in the trend of erotic fascination with the exotic other, his position differentiated him from other sexual tourists. His first encounters and sexual experiences in North Africa and the Middle East were in the late 1920s when he had served in the French army. Shortly afterwards, Genet was dishonorably discharged for being a homosexual. Additionally, for a soldier, Genet was uncommonly aware of his role as a representative of an oppressive colonial power. As Genet developed his political consciousness, his solidarity with the oppressed was always intertwined with a cross-racial desire. When asked about his activities with the Black Panthers and the Palestinian people in the 1960s, he answered, these two groups have a very strong erotic charge for me. Seeing the potential in Abdallah, Genet decided to devote himself to making Abdallah's dream come true, to be a famous tightrope walker, or rich men of the skies, as they used to call it in Germany. In order to pay for Abdallah's training, he sold a script he had written titled Forbidden Dreams, or The Other Side of the Dream. Genet knew everybody in Paris. One of his closest friends was the writer Monique Lange, who later became very close to Abdallah. At the time, she was living with the writer Juan Goitisolo. One of Spain's most important writers at the end of the 20th century, Goitisolo was exiled from his native Spain for expressing strong opposition to Franco's dictatorship. Goitisolo recounts the first time he saw Genet 
with his young lover. One day, Genet reappears on the Rue Poissonnière with a youth in his 20s. His very seductive face reveals a harmonious blend of feminine and manly features. He has a gentle voice, a gracious, elegant manner, and always speaks with great delicacy. Their relationship is like father to son. Abdallah was so important to Genet that in 1956, he wrote a poem dedicated to his circus artist lover. In one verse in the poem, titled The Tightrope Walker, Genet describes what he found as he was casually rifting through Abdallah's personal things. This moment not only reveals the nature of the relationship between the older writer and Abdallah, but also gives what is maybe the only glimpse into the inner life of the half-literate young acrobat. I would not be surprised when you walk on the earth if you fall and sprain something. The wire will carry you better, more surely than a road. Nonchalantly, I open his wallet and leaf through it. Among old photos, pay stubs, expired bus tickets, I find a folded piece of paper on which he has drawn curious signs. A straight line, which represents the wire, with slanting marks to the right and left. Those are his feet, or rather the place his feet would take. It is the steps he will take. And opposite each mark, a number, because he works to bring rigors, quantitative discipline, to an art that had been subject only to a haphazard and empirical training, he will conquer. What do I care, then, if he knows how to read or not? He knows figures well enough to measure the rhythms and numbers. In 1957, at the height of the Algerian War, Abdallah was drafted to serve in the French army. The colonial army needed to deploy more soldiers to pacify, as they called it, the urban guerrilla attacks carried out by the National Liberation Front, the FLN, during the Battle of Algiers. Genet, now an outspoken dissident of the war, convinced Abdallah not to join the people who were firing at his father's people. Abdallah deserted. His desertion from the army was part of a large movement among the French left at the time. It was led by the Janson network. The Janson network was a group of left-wing French militants who actively supported the FLN and persuaded French soldiers to defect. The movement was named after Francis Janson, a political activist and a friend of Genet. As a result of Abdallah's desertion, the two had to leave France. Abdallah was excited to adapt Genet's nomadic lifestyle as they moved between Germany, Austria, Holland, and Greece. Abdallah sent Monique Lange letters and postcards from their travels. 
Monique recalls. He could only write phonetically, but he wrote me beautiful letters. He was so happy. After searching for a highway instructor for Abdullah, Jeanne concluded no one was suitable for the job and decided he would train Abdullah himself. Jeanne devoted himself entirely to the task, knowing nothing about high wire artistry. Jeanne was a very strict teacher and controlled every aspect of the training. He also designed Abdullah's costumes, Halloween-style bodysuits covered with gold sequins, and he decided on his makeup, a white mask. I tell him about Camilla Meyer, but I also want to tell him who that splendid Mexican was, Con Coliano, and how he danced. Camilla Meyer was a German woman. When I saw her, she was about 40 years old. In Marseille, she had set up her wire 30 meters above the pavement in the courtyard of the Vieux-Port. It was night. Spotlights lit up the horizontal wire 30 meters high. To reach it, she climbed up on a slanting wire 200 meters long that started at the ground. Arriving halfway up the slope to rest, she put one knee on the wire and kept the balancing pole on her thigh. Her son, who was about 16, who was waiting for her on a little platform, brought a chair to the middle of the wire, and Camilla Meyer, who was coming from the other side, arrived at the horizontal wire. She took this chair, which rested on the wire with only two of its feet, and she sat down on it, alone. She came down from it, alone. Below, beneath her, all heads were lowered, hands hiding their eyes. Thus the audience refused this politeness to the acrobat, to make the effort to look steadily at her when she brushes with death. If you fall, you will deserve the most conventional funeral oration. Puddle of gold and blood, pool where the setting sun. You should expect nothing else. The circus is all convention. Juan Goiti Solo recalls the time he and Monique Lange watched Abdullah practice in Amsterdam. He climbs up to the wire, stretched between the two posts, and begins to sway with an unreal agility and lightness. His feet hardly touch the rope, while he shakes to a calypso rhythm, about two meters above ground. When he reaches the moment of the lethal jump, we all hold our breath, contemplating his incredible defiance of the law of gravity. Genet hides his Pygmalion's pride and says that Abdallah has improved, but the act is not ready. When noticing his tense concentration, the sweat bathing his forehead, and the fragility of his beautiful smile, Goiti Solor thought. Abdallah devoted himself to please Genet and put his life at risk by dancing on the wire without a safety net or a harness.
In the spring of 1959, while performing in Belgium, Abdullah fell. His knee was badly injured. After two surgeries and a period of recovery, he managed to get back on his feet and started training again. After successfully auditioning for the famous Italian Orfei Circus in Amsterdam, Abdallah was accepted and later that year joined them on tour. While performing a somersault on a tightrope in a show in Kuwait, Abdallah fell again. From the letter he wrote to Genet, it was clear that he would no longer be able to dance on the wire. His knee was too damaged. After a third surgery, Abdallah made a partial recovery and Genet got him back into a rigid training program, this time in Palermo. However, the two were disillusioned. Abdallah would not be able to perform somersault on the wire again. Their relationship started to deteriorate. Genet kept on looking after Abdallah. He also supported Abdallah's disabled mother by paying her rent. But by 1960, Genet was already mostly gravitating toward another young man, a 20-year-old rebel named Jackie. Jackie was a thief. Jean Genet, who was abandoned by his mother, a sex worker named Camilla, grew up in an orphanage. As a young man, he was involved in incidents of petty theft and was in and out of prison for several years. He saw something of himself in Jackie. Because Jackie stole cars, Genet thought that making him a race car driver would rehabilitate him from a life of crime. Instead of training Abdallah to be the world's greatest tightrope walker, Genet's energy was now focused on training Jackie to master yet another deadly art form. Abdallah knew he was no longer Genet's golden boy, yet he was still emotionally and financially dependent on him. Out of frustration, Genet tried to make him Jackie's errand boy. At one point, Genet even thought that Abdallah should become Jackie's trainer. When these plans didn't turn out well, Genet encouraged Abdallah to travel to the Far East. He hoped that Abdallah would escape his terrible reality and maybe in China he would learn some other kind of acrobatics. But there was a problem. Abdallah was a deserter. He could no longer use his French passport. Genet contacted another one of his prominent friends, the lawyer Jacques Vergès, known as the Devil's Advocate. Vergès was an outspoken radical lawyer known for defending FLN militants who fought colonial France. Because he signed the 121 Manifesto 
an open letter calling for France to recognize the Algerian war as a legitimate struggle, Vergès left France and was living in Morocco. Abdallah was issued a Moroccan passport and decided to go to Japan to pay for the flight. Genet gave him a painting by his close friend Giacometti and told him to sell it. Abdallah returned in 1962 and knew that he would never work in the circus again. He blamed Genet for his misfortune. Goitisola was one of the only people in Genet's circle to notice the destructive nature of their relationship. The life he knew and appreciated before meeting Genet had lost all attraction for him. He had deserted not only the army, but everything that usually satisfied the common individual. Routine, work, hobbies, friends, the family circle. His moral and emotional surrender to Genet was a journey with no return, a burning of bridges, a scorched earth policy. On February 27, 1964, Abdallah came to the offices of Gallimard Books where Monique Lange was working. I will never forget that day. He was standing outside the office. He refused to enter. He asked me for a box of Nebutal, the sleeping pills I was always buying for Jean. Well, after a short pause, Monique said regrettably that, you see, for almost 15 years, I was Jean's slave. I was looking after his health, his boyfriends, writing his letters, buying his cigarettes and pills, making him food. So when Abdallah said that Jean needed the pills, I gave them to him. Abdallah took the box of Nambutel went back to his apartment, took the phone off the hook, swallowed a large amount of pills, and slit his wrists. Death, the death of which I speak to you, is not the one that will follow your fall but the one that precedes your appearance on the wire. It is before climbing onto it that you die. The one who dances will be dead bent on every beauty, capable of them all. When you appear, a pallor, no, I'm not speaking of fear, but of its opposite, of an invincible audacity, a pallor will cover you. Despite your makeup and your sequence, you will be pale, your soul livid. It took almost two weeks until the landlady discovered the body in the attic of Abdallah's Paris apartment. She called the police and Genet, who brought Monique with him. When we arrived at the apartment, the smell was horrible. The body was surrounded with Genet's books, soaked in blood. When we went to the morgue, we saw that the poisoning from the Nembutal 
had blackened Abdallah's face. Jeunet said tearfully, he is black. He returned to his roots. He returned to Africa. Jeunet kept on paying the rent for Abdallah's grave for 22 years, but forgot to renew the lease as the law in France requires. In 1986, the same year Jean Genet was buried in Morocco, Abdallah's body was dug up from a grave in a small Muslim cemetery in Paris and dumped into a mass grave. Vertiginous, a radio play by Denegal. Part two, Abdallah. Written and directed by Denis Gall. Narrated by David Woodall. With Alexei Koryolov, Alex Martin, and Eva Polichenska. Produced, Jean Drach. Assistant producer, Livia Heiss. Podcast production of Oh Wow. Music and archive material, Denis Gall. Now, as we have listened to Danigal's episodes, both of them, it becomes even more pressing to look at dizziness in political contexts, which, by the way, is also the starting point of our collaboration, right, Sergio? Uh, yes, sure. Um, when you invited me as a curator to join your new dizziness project, I immediately thought of a feeling I have had since my childhood, and it's that dizziness is, in effect, a political manipulation, that when someone gets dizzy, someone else must be satisfied, even making a profit, whether economic or political, that you know, mostly comes together, of course. So we then thought about this kind of a model for our podcast. My dizziness is your order. And the questions of who is profiting from our dizziness? Who is manipulating and using our confusion? Maybe also who wants to keep us being dizzy and for which end appeared quite early in our research. Dizziness in social contexts is always also a political question. Dizziness in our lives is ambiguous. At times we are seeing, feeling, hearing dizziness spreading and it is petrifying us. We are baffled, incredulous, perplexed and sometimes even in denial. Because acknowledging to our becoming dizzy Admitting to losing footing in the world means admitting to an alarming loss of control, to a feeling of helplessness and vulnerability. So, dizziness as a transformative force appears in different scales, in minor and common occurrences, but also as major upheaval and turmoil. This brings us directly into the political and social implications of dizziness that we would like to discuss today. We will start from a more general assessment and then go into specific parts of the world, traveling from Austria to South America, the US, Korea and Turkey. And we will continue to think about the world we all live in and the systems we enforce or are enforced upon us every day. There is something fundamentally rotten with the system that we inherited. And with it I mean late capitalism. Philip Narval. The past nine years I've been managing the Alpbach Forum. Right now I work as an author and columnist. I 
and if you i mean by late capitalism the acceleration of capitalism as we have witnessed it after the second world war that acknowledgement is important because i think we're not yet fully fully there to understand that it needs to be fundamentally rethought this rethinking the creating of a difference in the political system can take different directions Lately, we see a rise in sympathies for a fascist and totalitarian system in Austria. And now in Italy and many other countries, a totalitarian, even fascist system creates certainties and builds on existing fears. Dizziness will induce fear. Uh, and either that fear is taking and given over to somebody who promises you certainty, like an authoritarian, or it's something that a community needs to hold. Remember, we start from the assumption that dizziness holds fertile and generative potential for an individual as well as for a society or a system. But of course, it can always drift towards the devastating and destructive. We like things to be without fear or danger. We are often attracted by the simple and the certain in political contexts, and dizziness denies us of this certainty and clarity that we are searching for. I'm a philosopher and a group psychoanalyst. Alice Pechriegel. Dizziness is very helpful and, and not only in order to understand, to see or, or to, to, to feel that this clear clarity is an illusion, that it is a, a fake most of the time, but that it has to be always searched like, um, like wisdom. It's uh, an utopia, clarity is an utopia. And if we say the Aufklärung, les Lumières, uh, it has to do with clarity. I don't think so. It has to do with uh, seeing things clearer. Yes, in a more realistic way, in a more, um, in a way which others can follow. But this is not a clarity which is imposed upon us by this um, system. So against the system, but beyond this system of uh, imposed clarity, dizziness is also a political tactic. Natasha Leonard. I think the question, the idea is of dizziness as a kind of conceptual hinge is really expansive and has a lot of possibilities. I'm a New York-based journalist and writer. The sort of work I'm interested in, which has a lot to do with liberation struggles and challenging um, systems of power, uh, both in governmental senses, uh, corporate senses, and in the ways in which our lives get ordered through certain modes of power relations and governance through hierarchies um, and different sorts of modes of control that we internalize and that we then um, normalize and normalize for those around us. I think the idea of dizziness creates an interesting potential aperture. Um, what does it mean to actually find oneself removed from perhaps an overbearing context or found, find oneself at a loss um, or confused and dizzy and dislocated from a world that itself um, carries a certain order, um, but one that's incredibly life-denying and devastating and decimating. Unfortunately, dizziness in sociopolitical context is not yet very well researched, but we see that it can have destructive potential for collectives. Um, so a kind of uh, fruitful opening for a sort of potential generative togetherness and interdependence 
um, through a dizziness or a rejection of the current order, I think could be really interesting. There's not necessarily a liberatory valence to the idea of dizziness. It's not necessarily um, salutary. It's not necessarily about a collective finding each other or breaking problematic orders. I think it's a, it's a state of suspension, no? It's like, uh, has to do with a state of suspension, something that uh, exists when, uh, when a certain order is, uh, is evaporating. Angelos Favarus. I'm an urban planner, let's say. This state of suspension would actually reflect a proto-dizziness situation, no? Yes, why not? But departing from that suspension, the moment of shock or whatever we want to call it, breaking existent order is attractive to a range of political movements, from liberatory to totalitarian. Being in constant suspension can also be an existential threat to a population. Well, it's very convenient for a power structure to not keep the population as we say, on their toes and constantly changing. Um, it may feed into this idea that if I'm in the hierarchy, I am getting more power. If, if you never notice that I'm bleeding more and more power away from you. Dan Novi. I'm a research scientist at the MIT Media Lab. There's all sorts of reasons where, you know, if someone is just constantly kept in a state of, of fear uh, and, and, you know, dizziness uh, that they can be more easily controlled. One day you are safe, one day you are not. Baja Janova. I'm a Turkish curator. This instability and this makes, this breaks people, I think, this, uh, because this uncertainty, it is the, it is the, it is the thing that really breaks people. This precarity is induced by power, so it can be manipulated by power itself promising us security and certainty from a real or virtual chaos. It's pretty common within the, you know, fascist figure playbook, um, is that you have the kind of the appearance of chaos or a real politic that is chaotic in its procedure, in its manifestation. But actually, there was absolutely no dizzying or dizziness or disorientation around the ide ideology. Like the ideology is profoundly firm in its footing and undizzy, it's, you know, it's reactionary, it's white supremacist, and yet its presentation uh, is in the real political maneuvering and navigation, very dizzying and chaotic. And I think those two combined is, you know, obviously very dangerous because you're uh, often, um, yeah, like, as you say, kind of focus, it's so easy to make people focus on, you know, that vulgar sentence or that uh, flip-flop on one small issue. But right. actually, yeah, it's true. yeah, but actually the, the ideology and the agenda marches along in step, um, you know, and not even taking a misstep through all the chaos. So I think they work incredibly importantly together. Yeah, Natasha, but I have to ask you, how does it work? And what are the dangers of using dizziness as a political tactic? So if you're thinking about the 2020 uprisings for yeah. um, black liberation, and then you think of the um, you know, fascist manifestation that was the January 6th riots, if you kind of step back and just looked at a kind of blurry screen with a squint and ignore the iconographies, 
you could just say this looks, you know, we see dizziness in both, we see chaos in both, we see um, an unsurprising eruption that nonetheless shocks. Um, but like the risk there, of course, is the same with any, I think, discussion about uh, when you're using like a conceptual hinge, like something like dizziness, um, because it's not just the fact that something is rupturous that makes it liberatory or beautiful or worth fighting for. It's not just that something is dizzying or displacing of an idea of a given order that means it's interesting or worth celebrating. I also want to absolutely destroy fascism. So if you, you, you know, if you just look for these dizzying, rupturous moments as the site of, you know, glorious political potentialities, you're going to end up finding yourself enamored by the fascists of January 6th. One window broken can mean one thing and another window broken can mean um, an entirely different thing. And that's why I think when we talk about something like dizziness of technique or dizziness of tactic, it's really crucial to finish the sentence and say, tactic for what, towards what end? Because, you know, there can be a dizzying, um, you know, fascist assemblage of people shouting Jews will not replace us and there can be a dizzying nationwide uprising for black liberation. Think about tech techniques and tactics and strategies without actual political argument and force is really dangerous. As I said before, for me, dizziness is the story of my childhood. I clearly remember my feeling, growing up in Argentina in the mid-70s, how the ground was being laid, slowly but surely, for a military takeover. That's how it works. They create chaos, pure and simple, by manipulating the economy, by fostering personal insecurity with death squads operating all around you, bringing precarity in every possible layer of life. Rumors and media assure that this situation gets amplified, holding people hostage in a constant state of dizziness. People can't bear this. They start wishing for a strong hand, for order, whatever the price might be. And then they get it. The military come in as saviors rather than thieves and perpetrators of a genocide. The use of so-called extra-governmental violence is especially cynical and effective, as we will see. Look at the death squads that are a regular feature in every totalitarian regime, and even more in totalitarian regimes in the making. Look at this violence in Mexico, the use of this indiscriminate murder served the drug cartels to keep the population frightened and disoriented, in this state of suspension that we are talking about. Now we propose a piece by La Presenta, composed by Eduardo Rudnitsky.
LRA Radio Nacional, Buenos Aires, República Argentina y la red de emisoras que integran la cadena nacional de radiodifusión, juntamente con los canales de televisión, el presidente de la nación un mensaje a todo el país dentro de unos momentos. Habla su palabra de ser difundida por Radio del Estado y la red argentina de radiodifusión. Habla la Secretaría de Prensa y Difusión de la Presidencia de la Nación. Dijo el general de división. Comunicado del Estado Mayor Conjunto número 165. El presidente de la Nación Argentina de Habla. Artículo primero. Habla. Habla.
somebody who has been studying the rise of totalitarian regimes in South America especially is our friend Ursula Prutsch. I am an Austrian historian and I'm teaching and researching on US American as well as Latin American history at the University of Munich. And as the political and geographical space is large, most of my research interests focus on the United States, Brazil, and Argentina from the interwar years of the 20th century to the 1970s and 80s. I have used the word dizziness to describe what I'm interested in when I work on Brazil and Argentina, for example. Yeah. But in effect, it's exactly that what occupies and concerns me because I like to think as a historian about how political power, how political strategies like populism, for example, shape and manipulate um, and control societies and individuals. And what kind of scope do individuals have, for example, in democracies or dictatorships in order to resist or to change the system? And uh, I asked myself, what are the indicators uh, that make a democratic system dizzy so that this dizziness brings it to the edge and transforms uh, a system to a dictatorship? Why uh, people who live in these countries, for example, often don't feel or decode the signs of authoritarianism. State of suspension to total dizziness. Comes in as a political tool or tactic, right? To understand how political discourse works, however, we need to think of the political narratives that are transported. First is the outsider narrative, the person who, um, like uh, Trump in, in, a West, in the Western, huh, who comes to a city um, that is shaped by corruption and uh, brings order. The other, perhaps, that Sergio certainly knows that better than me, and me that is uh, perhaps concerning Latin America, thinking back to Peron, also to Brazil uh, of Vargas in the 1930s, 40s. So these countries were colonies of European colonial powers and uh, they were exploited, and in the 1920s, 30s, they were uh, exploited in a certain form because many of these uh, countries didn't produce a lot of goods. So there, there was a kind of, yeah, neo-colonialism uh, in a certain form. And people like Peron, for example, spoke about uh, Argentine as a victim of European imperialism or US American imperialism and the need to be independent, the need to be, uh, to be sovereign, the need to, uh, to defend itself and uh, develop its own creativity and power. And I can Im imagine that one of the narratives, or I think one of the narratives of these uh, politicians is to regain power. So populism is basically rooted in the history of Latin America, of colonialism. The narrative always carries a certain need to defend oneself against real or imagined foes, but not through democratic process. The fight of good against evil cannot be fought on this level. But also, existing legal structures are also a barrier for totalitarian leaders that they themselves want to dismantle.
populists, I think, don't trust a democratic institution, especially not Congress or Parliament, uh, because they believe that they uh, serve their own interests and party politics. And I think one problem is that populists really believe in their form of democracy as a strong link between them and the people. Uh, coming back to narrative, is the narrative, this biblical narrative about the good and the evil, uh, this mannequinism, so that uh, populists create a good world against um, against their enemies, they, can't, they constantly create. And uh, reading um, the speeches of Eva Perón, uh, uh, they became so aggressive, so dark, yeah, uh, so full of revenge and revenge against everybody who was not a Peronist. I can uh, imagine, or, uh, imagine, or I believe that this constant tension that is created by populists uh, is also a um, tool for dizziness. But when threats are not enough, there is always what we could call total terror, right, Sergio? That's what's happened in Argentina, but also in Chile, Brazil, Uruguay, Mexico. In all these countries, people are vanishing, disappearing, without trace, still unaccounted for. Disappearances create a rift in our social fabric and keep the population in shock, suspension, terrorized and under constant threat. And for exactly the same ends, was developed personally by Adolf Hitler in 1941. He called it the doctrine of Nacht und Nebel, as Alain René's legendary film title, Nuit Recuillard. It's a very simple doctrine that targets political activists, but the most cruel you can imagine. And it is still the epitome of social dizziness in situations of totalitarian governments and wars, including now in the war in Ukraine. The idea behind this is that those that oppose the regime will be taken and their whereabouts deliberately blurred and erased. More than a terrible torture for the prisoners themselves, it's a terribly dizzying situation for their friends, relatives, and society in general. But this whole doctrine actually works on its glitches, meaning even people try to make sense of this, thinking those who were taken and disappeared were in reality involved in something that deserves punishment. The terror creeps in when people can't sustain this because they see again and again that those murdered, or at least disappeared, had nothing to do with political opposition. Well, it is as if these extrajudicial executions were or became already socially accepted. Yes, the most brutal phrase I heard again and again in the late 70s and early 80s coming from Argentina, when people heard that someone was taken was, algo habrá hecho, meaning he must have done something. 
but deep inside everyone knew that most likely not. I know for sure my friends who disappeared and never came back, and didn't do anything at all. This is an extreme example of people trying to trap onto something in order to avoid dizziness. Fascisms in different countries, on different continents and in changing contexts can differ. But as you said, Sergio, this Nacht und Nebel doctrine, this can be found again and again globally as a strategy to confer dizziness. From Europe to the Americas to Africa and Asia, one person disappears and a whole community is shaken. This sends shockwaves to communities. But it also traumatizes future generations. The thing is that this dizziness is a lasting legacy. It becomes radioactive in the sense that it transgresses generational lines. Thousands of people carry this feeling of dizziness well beyond the political powers that have used it. Our friend in dizziness, writer Anna Kim, has written about fascism in South Korea in her book The Great Homecoming. But she also carries the trauma of her father's uncertain fate. No, no, I try to, I try to keep myself out of my box. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I find it to be too dizzying to write about myself. Yeah, as I said, you know, I have very, um, I have very uh, complicated feelings towards uh, South Korea because, um, uh, yeah, because uh, my father's death was always um, a little. Uh, there's always been a mystery about that too, and. Um, Uh, and my parents were against the regime. So that was one of the reasons why they left. It was during the Olympic Games. <laughs> the, the then dictator decided to pronounce that, you know, the dictatorship is over and you know, South Korea is now officially a democracy. So that's something that my parents didn't foresee. And yeah. They didn't consider going back then, as far as you remember? Uh, no, because... Um, uh, That that's probably leading too far, but uh, no, they decided then not not because um, my father had actually gone back in '86, but uh, he died during the student protest in '86. There were very violent student protests in 1986, and um, he died during these protests. And my mother never she refused to go back. Do you know exactly what happened to him? Trying to find out things, information is um, uh, almost impossible. This is uh, the, the dizziness cloud that I'm always uh, trying to avoid. I'm navigating between, you know, dizziness clouds and trying to see the land under my feet. Almost impossible. In South Korea, the dictatorship officially ended with the Olympic Games. Public games and expressions of collective joy and pride an important role when it comes to politics and dizziness. Yes, also in Argentina, not only terror brings dizziness, but also collective euphoria. This is just another tool of populism. One example of the joy of dizziness is um, the World um, Soccer World Cup in 1978, uh, uh, where the military dictatorship did a lot uh, to create a national uh, dizziness of joy. Uh. Even it went so far to 
um, manipulate um, the whole event a little bit so that the Argentine team Please. would win. <laughs> and uh, when I think back of, for example, of the reactions, um, even by the German uh, players like Berti Fox, yeah, who came to Argentina knowing uh, that there is a brutal dictatorship and, and said, I didn't say, I didn't see anything. It was a national unity of joy. And I think this um, playing soccer as it is very important for Latin American countries yeah, and then instrumentalizing a soccer so much in order to show uh, for the outside world that everything is in, or in order and people are uh, defending uh, the regime. I think soccer played an important role in creating this dizziness of joy and a stadium, as we all know, is a perfect stage for creating these moments of collective joy. Huh? Okay, so it's a game of spreading dizziness through public events of staging both joy and terror to hold on to power? Yeah, this is what I believe. So this giving moments of relief and a couple of days later showing who has the power and the control. Huh? The military in Argentina tried to create the same feeling of nationalistic ecstasies by invading the Malvinas, or what the British called the Falkland Islands, in 1982. But it didn't work. General Galtieri didn't consider that on the other side, Margaret Thatcher was going to manipulate this event in order to rally nationalistic support for herself from the British people, or by opening a crazy campaign and war to reconquer the tiny islands. Bad calculations bring down populist regimes. That's well, how it is. <laughs> yes, but well, first they get to profit from the dizziness they spread. Of course, authoritarian leaders profit because they offer certainty. An authoritarian leader will always promise clarity and clear answers, and he will deny, mostly it's he because it's mostly men, he will deny uh, any Uh, gray spaces. Uh, and even though you feel as an individual politically that something might be wrong with that lie, because many people are tired and exhausted of life, of realities on this planet, there's a kind of uh, seductiveness about offering oneself up to that authoritarian promise. Even that you might know that on the horizon there is a big explosion when the lie is exposed, it's almost like sleep, you know, when you're in sort of Shakespearean drama and, and somebody offers you poison and, and you kind of know it's, it's going to put you down into an eternal sleep, but, but somehow you can't, you, you don't have the strength to, to, to resist that. Dissociation is a well-known response to shock, stress or trauma. This feeling of becoming sleepy, losing focus and memory, and moments of collective amnesia can be connected to stressors and dizziness. Well, it's funny because even when we get motion sick on a boat, we become drowsy and sleepy. But lacking the strength to resist the stress of political dizziness, what is actually the difference between political mass movements today and historical ones? It's different from the mass movements of 70 and 100 years ago, let's, let's see, the fascism of, of, of Mussolini, of Hitler. It's something that 
uh, that is very much, uh, it's not a mass movement, it doesn't know of, of, of big rallies. It's something that happens online, you know, your party membership might be your social media account. And uh, the violence that fascism creates doesn't happen on the street when you walk out of your door where you have Jews cleaning the streets. No, it happens far away on the frontiers of the Western world. So it's easier to ignore. So it comes and goes, but it is always there in different places on earth. Dizziness and populism and fascism. It seems that we are not very good yet at stopping this from happening again and again. Amnesia all over. Someone referring to quote-unquote migrants as cockroaches. And you think, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> how, how do people migrate from being human beings to cockroaches? What do you have to forget? What's the process of amnesia that allows the kinds of forgetting that builds into hierarchies in which there are beings and non-beings? So those things, the the aversion to fiction <laughs> uh, is what keeps me interested in, in the non-fiction. It's what keeps me interested in questions of the historical, you know, uh, because they act as a kind of powerful counterbalance against the sort of turbulence of amnesia. And amnesia is, is a constant sea. It's, it's, we swim in it all the time, you know. Oh God. This image, taken from a video with artist John Aconfra, of the migrants, of the other, as being cockroaches, is so charged with meaning. It recalls the rhetorics that started the Rwanda genocide in 1994. To call someone a cockroach, this means also an unlearning and forgetting of the idea and concept of the other that you had before, right? Essentially, this means history becomes dissolved in amnesia. Also, memories create a sense of certainty. Therefore, amnesia is a good tool for sustaining individual and collective dizziness. Well, uh, the association I can make could be, again, maybe to a little bit with the memory, because for me, the entire uh, politics and the uh, history of Turkey, even the recent history and or um, the history at large is all based on amnesia. So things are happening and then you're asked to forget them, then they're rewriting another history on top of it. So it's always a kind of a looping system. The feeling is there's constant amnesia and it's constantly you are locked in a short-term memory loss, constant. So, so in this way, like, of course, it's a pure dizziness, no? you cannot focus on anything anymore. And it's for me, again, very near to the sense of, or the feeling of dizziness. Well, isn't Putin a good example for our own amnesia? We keep forgetting Georgia, Armenia, Crimea, and then we're all shocked by him invading Ukraine again. But it makes me feel very anxious, the whole situation, and very, yeah, not, not very well. I have like nightmares. This conversation with Yevdokia Romanova, a Russian activist, took place on the 23rd of February 2022, the day before Putin invaded Ukraine. The next day, Yevdokia sent us this email. Email from Yevdokia Romanova, the 24th of February 2022. Subject line, 
uncertain groundlessness. I am petrified by the news. This is from my Facebook post today. Bombing for peace is like fucking for virginity. Putin, get your filthy, shitty hands off Ukraine. We were already deep in our dizziness podcast when the Russian aggression in Ukraine started. We are talking about the war in Ukraine, Putin's strategies of dizziness and uncertainty that keep the West on its toes. War is part of the spectrum of political tactics that create uncertainty. And it is that dizziness that helps totalitarian regimes thrive and endure. Yeah, I would describe it as dizziness and anxiety. Like the general feeling of anxiety, because I don't know a single person who would feel good about what is happening. Or maybe just in my bubble, in my circle. I think there is general feeling of anxiety and fear. And it wasn't long before Julia Stryskovska arrived from Ukraine, Kiev. She's a lawyer and artist, and now she's also a refugee. She brought to us her first-hand experience of war. There is uh, always like dizziness, but the, uh, and, uh, not only like uh, on the physical level, uh, it's on emotional, it's on the mental level. First days, it was even was very even. Uh, it was was hard even to think. You know, it was you could could not think clearly. You know, just obvious things, something like instincts trying to uh, start started to work you shall just run do just collect uh, your documents or uh, earn money and take uh, your kids and uh, just uh, do something you know to to survive so i think that it's it's dizzy but it's like something that is covered by but but something that is some instincts that it's hard, it it's like kind of something about biology i think um your, your animal Uh, instinct, yes, uh, yes, it, it's a, and it's a, it operates perfectly. I would say yeah. it operates without like doubts, thinking. It operates like machine, you know. It operates. We have been working together with Julia since meeting her. And uncovering knowns in the unknown played a crucial part in finding a foothold in turmoil. Unfortunately, this also applies to the populist and totalitarian playbook. Dizziness can be used when people are losing their place in the world, metaphorically, but also literally. And then populists let things fall into place in a new fashion that suits them. We see dizziness can be spread by violence and terror. A basic human need, the need to be safe in relation to one's immediate environment, is exploited. This is how dizziness can be instrumentalized. With Franz Fanon, but also in Yevdokia's and Julia's experiences, we learn how the experience of dizziness, othering and otherness are mutually emphasizing each other. Uncertainty causes dizziness and living in a constant state of dizziness proves difficult for us humans craving a certain stability in life. Nonetheless, uncertainty defines our lives and times. Whether it is in relation to politics, artificial intelligence, climate change, disease outbreaks, financial volatility or natural disasters, Every media headline seems to assert that things are uncertain and increasingly so. Dizziness, a state in which we do not know the probabilities or likelihoods of outcomes, is different too, but involves risk. As such, dizziness affects different people differently, depending on class, gender, race, age, geographical origin, religious background, and other dimensions of social difference. But the community affected by dizziness loses its shared ground or basis 
It is important to take note that it is not that business is always radical or should always be validated as political, but rather the question of what dizziness can do within politics and society needs to be considered. In this episode, we navigated through dizziness together with, in order of appearance, Philippe Naval, Natasha Leonard, Angelos Varvarousis, Dan Novi, Bashak Senova, Ursula Prutsch, Anna Kim, Yevdokia Romanova, Julia Srykowska. This is Podart by Ruth Anderwald, Leonhard Grond and Sergio Edelstein. Spatial audio mix, Florian Grond. Recording and vocal support, Ethan Vincent. Production, Jean Drach, oh wow. Assistance, Laura Brechmann. On certain groundlessness in the framework of navigating dizziness together, supported by the Austrian Science Fund's FWF Peak AR 598, hosted by Central Focus Forschung at the University of Applied Arts, Vienna. My order is your dizziness. More soon.